This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Uh, We talked about, you've been hearing from Nancy Lyons and our team about U.S. health officials expected to talk about tighter guidelines for the use of masks, especially in indoor settings in places where that Delta variant is spreading rapidly and increasing uh, cases of COVID. There's a lot going on. Moderna saying it's COVID-19 vaccine manufacturing partners outside the U.S., Tim, are facing delays due to lab testing issues that occurred in recent days. And in some places, we see cases come down. Other places, we see them go up. Yeah, we do like to do a periodic check of the numbers. Uh, Cases globally topping 194.8 million deaths surpassing 4.17 million. Uh, Vaccine tracker from Bloomberg News, more than 3.89 billion doses have been administered. Keep in mind that many of these doses require two shots in order for someone to be fully vaccinated. And the UK reported the highest number of COVID-19 deaths since March, prompting a top government official to warn the pandemic is not over yet. That is the subject of a Bloomberg story we'll dig into later. Let's get to our guest, Dr. David Levy. He's CEO of the healthcare provider EHE Health. He's an epidemiologist. He's based in New York City. That's exactly where we find him on the phone on this Tuesday. Dr. Levy, so nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you doing? What are you seeing when it comes to COVID and particularly uh, the Delta variant? Well, obviously around the country. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, asking me on again. Nice to speak with you. Uh, Look, I'm seeing what we're all seeing, which is we're basically living in a tale of two cities. You have cities and communities where there's high immunization rates and relatively low impact, and you have cities and communities with low immunization rates and relatively high impact. And uh, that's the world we're living in today. And I'm very happy to say that New York is uh, one of those cities where we're having relatively low impact because we're in a high immunization city right now. That said, we are expecting to hear from the CDC just in about 40 minutes. We do expect health officials in the U.S. to return to tighter guidelines for the use of masks. How are you reading into this, given that we were told weeks ago that fully vaccinated individuals don't have to be wearing masks indoors? Well, I think I said uh, a few months ago on this program that uh, epidemiology is the exact science of probabilities. Mm. And uh, as the environment changes and we're dealing with, you know, a a contagious and mutating virus, that uh, the facts on the ground and the recommendations will have to change. I mean, that's absolutely normal. I will tell you, when the first recommendations came out, I didn't interpret them that said that I should never have to wear a mask again. I mean, even in New York City, when I go, uh, if I went into a venue where there are five or 10,000 people and fully vaccinated, I would still wear a mask. And I'm going to suggest, I don't know exactly what they'll say, that they will make recommendations based on the level of community spread in whatever community you happen to be living in. And it's certainly not going to be the same in a highly immunized community versus a a low immunized community. So I think you have to, um, you know, like everything else, there's recommendations, then you have to use your own personal judgment and uh, with respect to local circumstances. Yeah, and when in doubt, maybe just throw on a mask. A headline just crossing the Bloomberg Terminal. This is coming from the FT, the Financial Times. England set to allow double vaccinated U.S. and EU tourists. What do you believe is the right thing when it comes to cross-border travel, Dr. Levy? Uh, well, I think in general, I don't think there's a big risk with respect 
to um, people who are fully immunized. I think the issues, and in fact, I gave a talk about this a couple of weeks ago. I don't think the issues are as much science-based as they are politically based. I mean, fully immunized people ought not uh, be precluded, in my view, from international travel. The risk is more, um, uh, uh, you know, when they go from place to place, they ought to be cognizant of the community spread and choose when and where to uh, to, to wear masks. So I, I, I don't think that fully immunized uh, people are, are at particular risk uh, 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 moving across borders. Personally, I'm now involved in situations with both the UK and Canada being fully immunized. I really don't have concerns for my own personal travel. What about people who are fully immunized getting a breakthrough infection and then perhaps even unwillingly uh, or unknowingly passing that to somebody who hasn't been vaccinated? What do we know about the ability of somebody who has been fully vaccinated to, to spread COVID? Well, we don't know a lot about that, in fact, and this is one of the issues people always want an answer to an evolving uh, scientific uh, uh, situation. We don't clearly know the answer to that. There's some early studies that should suggest that, in fact, there may be as high a viral load in people who have been immunized and who have gotten uh, COVID as those who have, in fact, not been immunized. But we don't know the extent to which that will spread. And as you well know, many of these cases are asymptomatic. But the best defense against any kind of spread is getting as many people immunized as possible. That creates the greatest wall. And, and I, I, I think people have to be reminded that nobody ever said these vaccines were 100% effective. They're 95% effective. We live in a city of 8 million people. If everybody was exposed to this new Delta variant, you would, you, you'd expect 5% of the people to, to, uh, to become infected, which is 350,000 people, and we're nowhere near any kind, those kinds of numbers. So the vaccines continue to be very, very effective. And, you know, uh, rather than picking out, you know, at one or two given situations in a given person in a given venue, the idea here is to look at the overall macro public health view and get people immunized. It's the most effective way to uh, lower the lethality, the lethality of this, this pandemic. And uh, the, the more, the faster, the better. It's as simple as that. Dr. Levy, one thing Tim and I wanted to ask you is, are we in a better place than we were a year ago, six months ago, a month ago? We are absolutely in a better place and from any point in the past with respect to our immunization status. And it, even though it slowed down, it gets better and better and, and, and better. I, I think that you could say that we're in a difficult spot in the past month because of the rise of this current variant. But that being said, it's giving, pointing us to a really strong lesson, which is the, 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 the best that we can deal, the, the, the best weapon to deal with these variants, not just today with this variant, but variants in the future, providing the variants don't circumvent the vaccine, is to keep getting vaccinated. You know, for people like myself who look every day at the statistics in New York City, uh, you know, we have about a thousand cases now versus a, a bottom, a, a trough of about 100, 150 a few weeks ago. The hospitalization rate has stayed pretty much the same, hasn't ticked up yet, and the death rate is still at record low. So the lethality of this epidemic in New York City is very, very low compared to where we have been in the past. And people should keep their eyes out 
on what the total lethality of this epidemic is and how immunization can improve that, you know, month, day, day by day, week by week, and month by one, month by month. And the single best weapon, I can't stress this enough, is getting immunized. Yeah, the numbers are there. I mean, the CDC has said that 97% of people who are hospitalized with this are people who have not been vaccinated. Um, Dr. Levy, I'm, I'm wondering about getting the next portion of Americans vaccinated. You have uh, New York City and California talking about and indeed uh, implementing vaccine mandates uh, starting at at different times for people who work in uh, respective areas. Are vaccine mandates a good thing? Well, uh, I personally believe in vaccine mandates. Uh, All of us went to school uh, with vaccines. Otherwise, we couldn't go to school. Nobody uh, told me or nobody told me to, uh, with respect to my kids that you had a choice to wear a mask or to get a measles vaccine. You had to get a measles vaccine. Um, obviously, today is a much more complicated social environment ar- around the issue. But I think there's a point, and, and we've cajoled our own employees, and we've gotten to very high vaccination rates uh, on a voluntary basis. But I think that for many people, this idea of vaccine and its impact with respect to the disease is still an intellectual construct. And somebody, uh, we were talking this morning amongst a few of us about this idea about a mandate, uh, uh, thereby making people give something up if they, in fact, don't get the vaccine is powerful, not necessarily your job, but the ability to go to a show or the ability to go to a restaurant. This idea of finally having to confront that if you're not vaccinated, your life will meaningfully change by having some sort of a restriction, I think can be a positive effect to getting more and more people. Uh, Somebody said this morning, you know, there's nobody writing emails that they're withdrawing from college because uh, their college happened to mandate vaccines. Nobody's pulling out of college uh, because of that. And I think that the same thing is going to be seen as uh, private institutions mandate vaccines. I think, you know, there's a lot of a threat about it, but I don't think that there's going to be a real withdrawal from from those institutions. I I really don't. It's funny that you say that my daughter starts college in the fall and her school just sent out a note saying that the vaccination rates aren't high enough. I guess they're asking for evidence and they're basically, I think, kind of pushing people people saying, you know, please get it. We're not making it mandatory, at least not yet. Um, But we'll see what happens. Dr. David Levy, CEO of EHE Health. Thank you so much. It's so interesting. Dr. David Levy just now talking about the idea of taking something away or you not getting access to something because you're not vaccinated. For for me and for so many people I know, the idea of just being safer and being able to kind of face the world. Getting uh, rid of the stress of being concerned that you could get the virus. That was enough for me. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, this week's cover story, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, happens to be among our most read stories today on the Bloomberg. You'll understand why in just a moment. It's about Beijing's crackdown on its big tech companies, how it is ushering a new era. So let's get to it. It's something we've talked about already a lot. Yeah, Joel Weber's editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Also, Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from L.A. Uh, my Biggest question, Joel, with this story is, did Austin get to go to Grand Cayman <laughs> to actually report it? Because that's how the story opens. Yeah, not a, not to my knowledge, but... Uh, you, you know, haven't I, gotten I, the expenses for July I, I haven't got those expenses. And I, I I was thinking, as you said that, that you know he just did that cover story not that long ago about Margaritaville. 
which may, maybe that <laughs> did take him to the islands, and I, I just didn't put two and two together. But, uh, you know, I think this story is super significant. When I think about um, storylines through the year, this one is increasingly feeling like the story of the year, which is mm-hmm. this China crackdown and, and, and what it really means. Because I, I think forever, investors especially, have always felt like, oh, wow, this is China. This is a growth story. And, like, the tech versions of companies coming from China – can be very different than American versions and, you know, just seemed like the, the sky was the limit. And then the sky has basically been brought down, um, and especially just the events of the last week. So we felt like that was, uh, you know, especially relevant for the cover this week. So, so Austin, can you can you tell me, like, you know, we, we set you loose on this story, and, and what really stands out to you about what China is doing right now? Because there's a term that you drop in the story, the China model, that I'd like you to explain to Sure, yeah. Um, and, and just up top, I, I, I should note that I am in Los Angeles reporting, not in the Cayman Islands on a beach anymore. I How promise. do we know yeah, that? It sounds like I, you're I, I hear the surf in the background. I can either confirm nor did I. <laughs> um, but I, I do agree, this is uh, one of the big stories uh, of the year that we're really eager to focus on when it comes to Silicon Valley versus China, because for so long they were sort of emulating the model that the U.S. had done with their tech industry for every, you know, uh, version of Facebook. There was a version of that in China, or there was Baidu, the, 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 the Google of China, or Didi, the Uber of China. And until just, you know, about October or so, that model had just continued growing and growing, and they were becoming more global competitors. Uh, but what, with these recent crackdowns on Didi, on Alibaba, on the education industry, on Meituan, we're seeing a very, a, a lot of upheaval in that model, where China is basically saying to its entrepreneurs, no, this has got to stop. No more, uh, you know, freewheeling capitalism. We're going to rein you in a bit, and we're going to do it a lot f- faster than the U.S. regulators can do it in the U.S. And I think the big standout thing for me, and we can talk more about the new model for China, um, but the big standout thing is that going into this, I assumed we'd feel hear a lot of negative reactions of the government intervention in China, and it was actually quite the opposite. We actually heard a lot of positive reactions, especially from the startup and VC community, that felt like this was going to level the playing field in the China tech scene in a way that won't happen in the the, the U.S. tech scene for many years. So why is the Chinese government no longer taking a permissive approach, Austin, when it comes to big Chinese tech companies? You know, there's definitely a sense that these companies were getting too powerful, Um, Alibaba being a prime example where it was um, acting with a lot of monopolistic behavior, alleged monopolistic behavior towards some of the startups, forcing them on their platform, forcing smaller players to sell out, taking advantage of their data, and really uh, behaving in a way that was in the corporate interest, but not necessarily in China's national interest. And I think that's really where the big pivot is happening in China right now. When we think about antitrust cases in the U.S., that's often to protect the consumer, but in China, it's increasingly to protect national policy. And so when these companies were veering off track, not behaving in a way that was in the in China's national interest, that's when the government has stepped in and say, Alibaba or Tadidi or Meituan, that they have to behave differently. You know, reading this story, Austin, and, and just hearing you describe it like that, uh, I think some, some critics of U.S. tech companies could say, hey, wait a second, this is what we see U.S. tech companies doing to, to their smaller competition. Correct. I mean, we, we did hear that. I mean, one, one person had told me that, uh, uh, you know, China was able to rein in Alibaba within four months, whereas it's going to take 
U.S. regulators, you know, years and years, if not longer, to rein in a company like Facebook or Google uh, about their alleged, you know, privacy issues. Um, and so basically what we have to look at is what, what is the outcome of these two different approaches to regulation? Uh, on the one hand, uh, critics and observers believe that U.S. tech companies might uh, have a bit of more of an edge in the global scene. They will, Facebook, the FANG companies will continue to grow at a more global scale where China's model is now becoming increasingly China-centric and also less founder-centric. Uh, in other words, sort of the, the sort of heroes of the, the tech industry in Silicon Valley, like Alibaba co-founder Jack Ma, might not be as vocal or as present uh, as sort of their counterparts in the U.S., like Elon Musk will continue to be. Um, and so there's just a give and take there. On the, the one hand, China might have less global champions, but perhaps they, they that sort of reigning in the top players allows a new generation of startups to grow, whereas in the U.S., startups are finding it difficult to grow without being swallowed up by the bigger players. Austin, what have you not said that you needed to say? I, I not, I've not said that I, I will be filing an expense report. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I, I better get to the Grand Caymans just to do some last-minute fact-checking. Right? Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. I read your story and I was thinking, okay, the EU is leading when it comes to climate change, regulatory uh, moves. I feel like China is now leading the way when it comes to big tech oversight. You know, what's the U.S. role in all of this and what does it mean for U.S. big tech companies? I think the U.S. is still figuring that out. I mean, we, we, we've seen so many hearings. We've seen sort of fines levied in the EU and the U.S. towards certain companies. But it has not played out as aggressively uh, in the U.S. as it has in, um, the, in, in China markets. Uh, we are seeing sort of uh, U.S. companies uh, having to, you know, one sort of interesting juxtaposition was on July 4th. This is days after Facebook has been dealing with uh, you know, issues around government intervention, what's going to happen with some of the antitrust suits against them. And you have Mark Zuckerberg gliding on that, that hydro surfboard on July 4th on Independence Day carrying the American flag. Compare that to someone like uh, Jack Ma, who's basically disappeared in recent mm-hmm. months and we haven't seen him. And you can really see the stark difference between how much pressure the U.S. tech companies, the largest giants are facing, versus, is, uh, versus the Chinese tech companies. Um, but I, I would just yeah. really stress that this is a nuanced, complicated issue. And the Agreed. idea from a Western perspective that, the, that China is just breaking down their big tech scene right. is not correct. They're just trying to tell them what they can no, huh. t- no longer do. It's the perfect read right now. Investors, U.S. investors are going to love the American tech companies even more, though. Right. That, As I think a result, that's the, the big one big, big takeaway. Well, it's a must read and check it out. It's the cover. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Austin Carr, uh, technology reporter here at Bloomberg News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. TikTok, everybody. We are waiting from uh, the CDC a bit of an update uh, when it comes to COVID and mask wearing. So as soon as that begins, we will take you there live. In the meantime, you know what also got underway today? Uh, The Federal Reserve. Two-day meeting. Busy. Yeah, and we're going to get that decision tomorrow. Uh, Let's find out what we should be watching out for. We've got a dynamic duo. Steve Skanky back with us, Chief Economic Advisor at Kill Point, former U.S. Treasury and White House National Security Council staff member based in Washington, D.C. That's where we find him uh, on the phone. And also with us, Francis uh, 
Donald. She is Global Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy at Manulife Investment Management. She, too, back with us on the phone from Montreal. Francis, uh, Steve, so nice to have you here with us. Francis, let me kick it off with you. What is it? I mean, is it going to be a boring meeting? Can I just go out for a, like a three martini lunch and then come back <laughs> when it's all over? Or do what do I or should I be closely listening and watching? Sometimes it's better. I'm not a martini kind of gal either, so I don't even know why I said martinis. But go ahead. Well, you might have the right strategy because there's always uh, an emphasis on trying to parcel out word by word. I think they can probably get away with not doing much tomorrow. But the question, of course, is when is this paper coming? Is it going to be MBS or UST focused? How much warning are we going to get? My view is it actually doesn't really matter whether we get a September taper or a December taper. That's not the underlying question that has spooked markets here. The question is, did the Fed really have a change in their policymaking reaction function with average inflation targeting? They're focused on broad-based and inclusive employment. Do those 2022 rate hike dots really matter? Are we just going back to pre-COVID-style monetary policy? So the most important question I'm looking for is, does Powell in some way push back against those 2022 dots, push back on the idea that AIT was just with service, and give us some indication that, yes, taper or no taper, they will be very patient on rate hikes. 2022 has to get priced out a little bit more, I think, for this curve to start re-steepening. So, Steve Skanky, come on in here uh, and, and weigh in on this. Do you agree with Francis that that is the most important thing we should be keeping an eye on when it comes to what we hear from Jay Powell and the Fed tomorrow? Well, it certainly is something that we uh, – well, thanks for, for inviting me. Yeah. It certainly is something that we want to be paying attention to. I think the big challenge for tomorrow is, uh, is for the Fed to uh, uh, not walk back from uh, its, its somewhat hawkish um, uh, outcome with the uh, the change in the dot plot from its meeting a month ago and uh, at the same time uh, to uh, acknowledge that the COVID-19 Delta variant uh, uh, could uh, become an issue. Uh, we see uh, some of the indicators of, of economic growth uh, uh, slacking a little bit. Uh, the Fed hasn't seen uh, its employment growth numbers achieved yet. And so it, uh, it it wants to uh, keep the stimulus on, but at the same time uh, doesn't want to disappoint the market that it uh, is giving up its vigilance on inflation. Uh, you know, the inflation is uh, numbers are really a conundrum for the Fed, uh, because when you drill down into it, uh, uh, you know, numbers like uh, like housing or uh, um, shelter, which is 33 percent of the CPI basket only up two and a half percent over the last 12 months uh, through the end of June. And for, for anything really to happen that's not transitory mm. in inflation, you, you have to see some basic shift in something, uh, you know, in shelter, medical services, food at home. And there just hasn't been that there yet. Uh, so the, the, the Fed needs to assure markets, but yet at the same time, acknowledge what it always acknowledges about we haven't seen substantial progress yet toward our goals. Right. And the bond market would tell you that, yeah, we're in on that narrative. We've got the 10-year note uh, right now at 123. Francis, what about, though, the financial markets? We are seeing some pressure today because of the big tech names, although we're coming off our lows. Concerns about earnings, concerns about outlook. It'll be interesting to see what these big companies, what do we have today? We have Apple, we have Google, Microsoft, Microsoft. What Starbucks. They, right. What they say about you know the variant, the you know Delta and COVID, 
How much do you think, we know the Fed watches financial markets, how much do they watch earnings as well in terms of figuring out what the growth and inflationary trajectory might be? Well, I always think of the Fed like macro strategists. Maybe that's my own bias. But if they're like me, and I think sometimes they are, maybe I'm like them, what they're probably looking for are clues within those statements regarding a few key issues that are really creating massive uncertainty for the outlook. One is supply chain disruption. And we may not think that that shows up and maybe tech earnings to the same extent, but any indication that those are either falling back and abating or persistent problem does change not just the inflation outlook, but the growth outlook. They're likely going to be listening for for comments about labor shortages and any indication that maybe some of that labor force participation rate is coming back and how that's going to be impacting wages. And then Mm. if they're likely, they're also looking in earnings for any indication about how government spending ahead might change the outlook. These are three huge uncertainties that aren't just weighing on central bank reaction function or the way we construct asset allocation portfolios, but individual companies in America as well. They're creating this breadth of uncertainty that means we don't have clear vision on what growth, inflation, or policymakers are going to be doing ahead. And that's the underlying problem. That's the nerves you're seeing in this market is this complete lack of visibility. Uh, Stephen, we only have about a minute left, but I'm going to ask you the question we ask each and every time there is a Fed meeting. What's what's the question that you ask Fed Chair Powell tomorrow uh, if you were given the chance? And just got about 40 seconds. Sure. Well, at, at, at Kale Point, we're, we're watching for any indication that's going to drive markets one way or the other. So I guess my, my, my main question for him to be... Uh, uh, would be, uh, okay, so you, you talked about talking about tapering. Uh, so this time, did you actually talk about it? And do you have a plan? And when will we uh, expect to see that plan? Do we have to wait till after August? Do we have to wait till t- September? And, and while I agree uh, uh, that it, it doesn't matter so much as to when it starts, right. uh, markets would like to know uh, when they're going to get on with it. Steve, really quickly, do we hear more about, do we hear Delta being said more tomorrow or transitory? Uh, I think probably Delta more uh, tomorrow, although this is their first Uh, meeting since the uh, June inflation CPI, so so probably transitory is going to be in it too. Francis, five seconds, Delta or transitory? Delta, what is going on in the housing market? Are they afraid that it has bubble components? That's my question. Francis Donald over at Man U Life and Steve Skanky over at Kill Point. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. I'm kind of setting up my four screens of the Bloomberg Terminal so that I can track uh, the dump of earnings that we're going to get from big tech names, Tim, in Microsoft, just a few Alphabet, minutes. Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, 
all set to report, among many others, Starbucks, too. These are big ones. AMG. They have provided a lot of momentum, uh, certainly to the trade over the last year or so. Let's see what Hillary Kramer has to say when it comes to today's market trade and those earnings yet to come. Hillary Kramer is President and Chief Investment Officer at A&G Capital Research, author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trend. She's on the phone in New York City. Good to have you back with us. Uh, what's on your radar today? Because we've talked a lot about big tech earnings, Chinese oversight, Chinese big tech selling off. We've talked about the Delta variant. What really matters to the equity trade in your view? Well, All of the above exactly. is okay, too. I mean, Carol, <laughs> it's everything that you mentioned, but you know, the market's very nervous here, for sure, and that's what those, those variants are. But you have, right, you have China. The valuations are high and overstretched, but then we have these, like, brutal sell-offs, right, with these sharp sell-offs, and then, like, everyone gets kind of shaken out, and then the you know, and then everyone comes back in. Um, but I think that, I really do think that COVID with the Delta variant is an issue. The Fed stopping with tapering could really be a concern because next could be, you know, raising rates. And no one's really talking about taxes and a $3.5 trillion infrastructure deal, a human infrastructure deal that needs to be paid for. And that's concerning everybody from the far left to the far right. You know, ordinarily it's something that, you know, we all want and we, you know, we, we recognize the importance. But uh, when you're talking $3.5 trillion, the market's very nervous. Now, in terms of specifics, Carol, yeah. Apple is tricky. Let's talk about earnings like like in a few minutes from now. What right. is it, what's on my radar? Yeah. That's Apple, on our radar too, Hillary. Apple yeah. is really tricky because 5G, I think, is already built in. I, You know, it's not a, Apple's not a top-line grower. They don't have all that cash that they used to have. Everyone thinks of Apple as like, you know, rich in cash, but they've bought back so much stock. And then I was looking today at the operating income. In 2016, Apple's operating income was $69 billion. Last year, it was $77 billion. It is not a big growing company. I do think Microsoft is going to be great. I think they're, they're, they just continue, you know, on all cylinders to grow and everything from, you know, gaming uh, to, to their web services and cloud computing. So they're very strong. And, uh, and uh, so those, those, that's really what's on the radar. Um, my other concern, of course, is what we're going to hear in terms of, uh, like, for example, Caterpillar on Friday, mm-hmm. you know, reporting. We have Ford. Now, Ford doesn't matter a lot, but Ford on Wednesday is going to matter to me because we want to hear what, more, what Ford has to say to the, to the minute about difficulty with the supply chain. Yeah. Right? You know, we keep hearing this. Everyone knows semiconductors are a problem. But what- Elon Musk was okay. I guess you just have to do it all yourself, huh? Well, you have to, the problem is that's just it. Nobody really can, and I think that one of the reasons we see a lot of these um, engineering and infrastructure companies not really like catching a bid, even with a 1.5 trillion dollar, you know, like actual infrastructure coming. That's not the human infrastructure uh, bill that we're going to see. But the concern is, how are they going to really be able to build? Mm. You know, they're really backed up because of that. And so, what I am advising and what we're writing about is that we think that the banks, you know, there's this sort of built-in expectation of recession. So we think the banks are the best opportunity right. here. And uh, the banks are also a great uh, w- proxy for, for having bonds. Hillary, I want to go back to something that you said a couple minutes ago okay. with regard to the Delta variant. Did you say that it is a concern or is not a concern for markets right now? It's, it's, 
it's becoming it's becoming a yawn, right? It's not as much of a concern as it had been. However, it's the kind of thing that can, you know, that can bite us, you know, that can just, you know, get us really quick and especially when you see the numbers and how fast COVID can spread. Why is it why is it a yawn if the CDC is is changing its guidance, if we saw the sell off a week ago Monday, the narrative around that was because of concerns about the Delta variant. Why is it a yawn to you? Because the market worries about the unknown, what it absolutely doesn't understand that could hit it, you know, like, you know, a chair, like you couldn't hit over the head, the stock market worries, but everyone has sort of this built-in expectation. We're no longer in March, April of 2020, where we're wearing, you know, two pairs of gloves and we're stripping down when we get home. The, the concept now is, okay, COVID is bad. Now, I'm saying what the sentiment is, in my opinion, Living in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, across from NYU Medical Center, Langone, I can tell you it is real. It was real. I saw dozens of mm-hmm. you know, medical examiner trucks, you know, refrigerated uh, oh. morgues, and it's real. But the market isn't really paying attention to it. Instead, the market's more concerned really about China right Mm. now, uh, which should, I think, be the least of our concerns, except if we have a lot of investments or some of the funds that are highly invested in China. So you're not so – but wait, so – Explain that. What does our audience, I mean, we've talked about that a lot in the last couple of days and certainly this week and over the last couple of weeks. And really, it's going to be when we get to December of 2021, this is going to be one of our big stories of the year. No doubt about it. What is it that our audience needs to you know, continue to pay attention to when it comes to China? Uh, that... It has to do with really more the Kathy Wood type funds, the funds that are... She's getting out of Chinese tech companies. I know, I saw that. So she's starting to dump and leave those. Why would she do that? Because she sees that uh, that her return, her alpha is slipping because of China and... That's where one needs to be concerned. To me, it reminds me of like in the year 2000 with Internet stocks starting to fall, but the greater market really didn't have much concern. At the same time, though, of course, you know, there could be some spillover. But uh, these Chinese stocks, right, Alibaba keeps hitting 52-week lows. Is Um, Alibaba a bargain right now? I don't think so. At this point, I wouldn't touch it because... We don't really know exactly what's happening in China, but we have enough strength and understanding and transparency in the U.S. market that we can, we don't have to really worry that, I'm not really focused on China. I mean, again, my big concern is inflation. My big concern is we we have these unemployment benefits that are expiring, the last of them, uh, September 3rd. So you have unemployment and you have this extra $300, which some, I know, states have already eradicated, but... Um, you know, we could we could see that could be the big well, tipping point. Hey, listen, when- I want to jump in because we're running out of time. And but one of the things you say is avoid big tech until after earnings. These stocks will get cheaper. If you say you're worried about a bubble, this is where the bubble is. But potentially there could be some opportunities after we get this this dump of big tech earnings. Yes, and the reason is simply that people go back into it. So it's almost they always do, right? <laughs> it's always more of a trade at this point. But you're looking at valuations that are overstretched. But at the same time, I will say Apple is trading at 20, 28 times next year's earnings. You know, right. five dollars and thirty four cents. That still isn't horrible. But Microsoft, which I love, and I think that they're going to be the one that we're going to see up. You know, in 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 trade in 
after market trading tomorrow morning. We're going to see up. It's, it's Microsoft. I never thought I would see it at thirty trading at thirty four times June twenty twenty two earnings. Right. So um, yeah. So Carol, it's a worry. It's a concern. Got you it. Know, we all have forgotten the fact that you know these were stocks that were you know all trading below a hundred dollars. You know, and that are so very you know, yes, it's very it's, different. Uh, Overstretched. Everyone's looking right. for yield. Everyone's looking for return. There's too much liquidity out there. The Fed has done us absolutely no favors. They've made billionaires out of some. Got it. And there are lots of people that don't have it. So. Hil- Hillary, we've got to run. But thank you so much. You covered so much ground like you always do. Hillary Kramer, she's over at A&G Capital Research joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.